whistleblower report exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report Inside Pharma, and this is Dr. Lee for America with Hedley Reese, my co-host, who is the pharmaceutical manufacturing supply chain distribution expert, a career working in this field of proper pharmaceutical manufacturing to guarantee safe and effective medicines and vaccines, none of which has been happening since the rollout of the COVID shot. And Hedley Reese is exposing all of the subterfuge and the lies and deceptions in calling the experimental gene therapy COVID shots safe and effective when they are deadly and dangerous. He is bringing with him today a guest, Dr. Pedro Morego, Senior Lecturer in Research Methods at Teesside University, in the UK. So, Headley, introduce us to your guest and why Dr. Morego has interesting and helpful insights for our listeners to understand. Yes, thanks, Dr. Lee. I'm delighted to introduce my good friend, uh, Dr. Morago, or Pedro, as, uh, as I call him. We first met, uh, he is very much really clued into the whole geopolitical world that's going on. And at the time I met him, I didn't know a lot about what's been going on. And uh, ever since, he's had to educate me. But his main, his main uh, um, area of work is as a lecturer in evidence-based health and ev- evidence-based research. And I was deeply impressed by his methodologies, his rigor, uh, the way he approaches um, evidence and how to make the best of it and how important it is. Uh, we also work together on a program at the local university to educate students in applied sciences in the good practices of developing, researching and manufacturing drugs. Uh, that was a digital, digital education program. And uh, we got to know each other even better then. Um, I should say also, he lives in Cortona in Tuscany, which is a wonderful part of the world. So uh, he's a very lucky person in that sense. But Oh, my I- heavens, that is beautiful. I've, I've been to Tuscany many times, and what a gorgeous area. Now, that's interesting that his work at the university is in Middlesbrough, England, and he's able to live in Tuscany. Talk about one of the benefits of technology 
that's that's really exciting. Yeah, it's fairly recent due to obviously due to all the virtual work. You know, I know that um, it's uh, it's something Pedro has just started to do, and I'm sure uh, he'll enjoy that very much. But his real skills, and he demonstrated that as a with a witness report on the Pfizer clinical trials, and really that report is so striking in terms of what the CDC what the FDA and the various other committees were doing when they were evaluating the original uh, launch of, of these emergency use authorizations. So I, I really want to focus on that to start off with, uh, Dr. Morago. And could you just tell us a, a bit about how you came to write that report and your main findings? Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Lee, for inviting me. It's a, a real pleasure to be with you all today. Thank you very much to Hedley, of course, for for your kindness, for your for inviting me, for uh, basically for allowing me to talk to the American public, which to me is really an honor and um, a really excellent opportunity. To, uh, to put this message across, because as we see probably within this program, one of the problems with all these irregularities we see is the little or, or no diffusion or uh, dissemination that they have had. Very briefly, I, I will tell you uh, about my background. I have an initial legal background in Spain as a lawyer, so I, between the university and practicing as a lawyer, I spent about 17 years in, in Spain. But then gradually I moved, so I was more interested in other areas, particularly the area of mental health. So at a certain point, I decided to change career and I moved to Britain, to the UK, to specialize in the area of evidence-based interventions, evidence-based practice. So after three years in Oxford, I, I specialized in this area, which is, I think is very simple uh, to explain. So it's just simply about what is the quality, what is the validity of research studies. So I specialized both in the area of clinical and social studies. So I think something which everyone I can understand very, very easily that from millions and millions of research studies, the quality of these studies varies. So there are robust studies uh, from which the evidence is strong. Then there are many studies with, with less, with lower validity, with lower methodological quality. And there is a lot of studies with really, really very, very low validity. So that's the point. So if I'm not wrong, I teach exactly the same discipline as Dr. Peter Doshi, who many of you will know because it's been one of the most prominent figures in talking about what we are going to talk uh, today. So Peter Doshi uh, teaches this area of evidence-based practice at the University of Maryland in, in the States. And I teach exactly the same discipline to our students in, in Britain, in the UK. I have to say that this, this movement, so this discipline of evidence-based practice emerged fundamentally uh, around Oxford, around Oxford University and the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine in the early 1990s. And from that expanded very quickly. And in the United States, for example, we have really, really excellent figures 
in the field of evidence-based medicine and all the like health professions. So the point is the, is that after uh, 19 years teaching this subject, so what is the quality of clinical studies, as soon as um, Joe Biden uh, on the 9th of November of 2020, when he was elected uh, president of the United States by the AP, I think it was the APE, the, the American Press Association, the APA. So uh, Biden announced that the vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccines were available, so were ready for authorization. So immediately, given my profession, that same day, I went to the data, to the data supplied by the pharma companies, particularly I think was Pfizer. If I if I'm not wrong, it was Pfizer, the first vaccine which was basically announced. And um, I remember and many of you may remember this because it was a, a very very well uh, well disseminated data. The efficacy of that vaccine came from 170 positive cases of COVID with mild symptoms. So 162 positive cases in the placebo group and eight cases in the vaccine or experimental group. Of course, I said, well, how can we determine the efficacy and safety of a product which is going to be put in the market for the global population with 170 cases? So, and that was the starting point. So from that point, I started collecting data. I went to the studies. So um, the, at that point in November 2020, the process of authorization before the FDA was still ongoing. So the final uh, decision is not uh, reached until the 11th of December of 2020. So in November, we were still in the middle of the basically the, the authorization process. So I followed from different sources, the, the data. So both the data supplied from the companies and the process followed by the FDA. And I started to see that the whole thing was full of irregularities. So basically, probably a really, really a series of problems will be necessary to explain in depth all the irregularities. But that was the starting point. Then I collected uh, details and information from many different sources. Uh, one of the difficulties with this thing is that you won't find all this information in a single site. So you have to go uh, to newspapers, to journal articles, to data from the uh, from reports from the pharma companies, which are not very easy to access, by the way. So even for a person, for a professional with skills, this task is quite difficult. So for the layman, for the ordinary man, I think it's something which is absolutely impossible. And that explains why all this information, these details are largely unknown by, I would say, most of the people. So uh, that's what the point. And, uh, and again, so the, both the studies were full of limitations, full of weaknesses, and even worse, uh, if I'm not wrong, to my knowledge, today, the companies have not supplied the raw data. And you may know as well that this has been in the past years, one of the main points raised by Dr. Peter Doshi. And anyone, anyone who is familiar with research studies, and particularly academic tutors, knows that if a student, for example, a doctoral student, 
that's important. Well, thing. you know, Dr. Morego, even even with the knowledge that the companies are not supplying the data for proper analysis, we also have government agencies and regulatory agencies colluding to withhold data. For example, in the United States, the CDC has many hundreds of thousands of vaccine injury reports that simply are not posted to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, where it's required to be supported, reported. In addition, there is a legal requirement in the vaccination center's participating provider agreement to be a vaccination center in the United States, that in their agreement with the CDC, they are legally required to report all adverse events of the COVID shots that occurred in their vaccination center, otherwise face civil and criminal penalties under U.S. law. That's in the legal agreement. And I've seen the document. It's on the CDC website, albeit it's buried, but it's there. And what that means is that all of these hospitals and pharmacies and clinics, doctors' offices and other settings where the vaccinations have been taking places, churches and grocery stores and everything else, they're not reporting the they're not doing the required porting of injuries that occur following vaccination in their center. So we have a lack of reporting of the adverse events. We have a cover-up and withholding of the posting by the CDC. The FDA colluded with Pfizer to keep the adverse events from the clinical trial from coming to light until a court in Texas overrode that cover-up. And, um, and mandated that the data be released. And now we have people analyzing it. So even if you have the professional training that you do to ferret out all of these different sources of information and try and put the pieces together into a coherent whole, you're missing huge pieces of the puzzle for lack of reporting. So it's worse Really, at least here in the U- in the U.S., I can't speak for what's happening in the U.K. That's for you and Headley to talk about. But there's definitely a failure to report the data here. Yes, absolutely. That's that's one of the basically the features of the whole situation that all those institutions, all those bodies who have uh, the role of controlling the data and the quality of the data for uh, whatever reason they haven't they have not do, done it. So as I was saying, the, anyone so anyone familiar with uh, a research project knows that if, for example, a doctoral student presents, uh, so that doesn't give evidence of the raw data, uh, they will fail for one simple reason because without the fa- without the raw data you cannot demonstrate that the study has been actually conducted. And that's exactly what we do, for example, with our students doing statistical uh, statistics models. What we do is to make up a database, a fake database, for the students to perform the statistical analysis. And the results can be impressive. 
but the initials of the raw data are invented, are made up for us for teaching purposes. Without the raw data, we don't have any evidence that the studies have been actually conducted. And this is so incredible that even it's even difficult to explain to people this. And that's exactly the point that Peter Roshi has been raising during years. So basically, we must have the raw data. Otherwise, what we've got from the pharma companies has been just simply a set of statistical analysis. And that's, that's really, that's really concerning that, that the FDA and, of course, all the other regulatory agencies have ignored and even tried to conceal this. Because as um, Professor Doshi says in one of the, the articles he wrote for the British Medical Journal, the fact that the raw data had not been provided by the companies was known only through a leak of a report that had been concealed by both the pharma companies and the FDA. So if this is not collusion, then we are talking of a blatant case of ignorance. But in any case, the, um, all these regulatory agencies have approved, have authorized, so have authorized um, evidence which, again, we don't have any proof that this evidence from studies has been actually, actually carried out. And this is very concerning. And then after that, we are talking of, so the first authorization was, I think, was by the British and MHRA. We are talking of the 2nd of December 2020. From that day on, everything, Dr. Lee, as you point out, has been exactly or has had exactly the same pattern, a pattern of concealment, a pattern of collusion. Can I just make a comment here? Because um, I've been in the industry a long time, and until the uh, emergency use authorizations came along, the company had to submit all the raw data, all the data to the regulator, FDA or European Medicines Agency or MHRA, in a common technical document, which is harmonized globally. And that typically took 18 months, 12 to 18 months to, the, to review, to go through all the raw data, the studies, the study reports with the supply chain or the suppliers, the contractors, make sure they've got inspect, been inspected, all that. And at the heart of this is the emergency use organizations or the conditional marketing authorizations in Europe were just a fraud, an absolute fraud. The data has not been provided to the, the, the people who have the skills to evaluate the data. And that would be the, only the FDA. The CDC won't have it. Uh, these other illicit organizations, such as the WHO or whoever else is set up, they won't, you know, they, they don't get the data. They've never had the data. The only body that gets the data is the competent authority for the, um, for the country. And in the U United States, it would be the FDA. And we should have a spotlight on the FDA to say, do your job. Your job is to review, uh, effectively do what Dr. Morago has been doing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just going to mention that just to add a bit more context to it. Yeah, that's correct. And if I can add something, I would like to explain the difference between the raw data and the data which was provided by the companies. The 
data provided to the, the FDA and the other agencies was data for the variables, the variables involved. So data about, so basically efficacy, efficacy uh, of the vaccine in the experimental and control group. But what they didn't provide, what I mean by, by raw data is the sociodemographic data. So they didn't provide details about, for example, who were the participants. And if you don't provide that, I can assume that you can you can be making up that study. So that's the point. And that's exactly what we require to our students and everyone in the world. So require to a doctoral student. You have to provide all the raw data. And of course, you need to make sure that those raw data are kept confidential. But the raw data need to be provided. Otherwise, you are just simply creating something from, from nothing. And just to, uh, another uh, another tip about this, about this process before the FDA, um, the, the FDA's uh, advisory committee had two meetings, one on the 22nd of October and the final one on the 10th of December, both in 2020. And I advised to all the friends who are uh, now listening to us to try to access um, an article written by Dr. Diana Zuckerman. I think, um, I don't know whether it's currently, still currently the, basically the, the chair of the, he's the, the, is the Center for Medical, or I can't remember now if he's the Center for Health Research in the, the United States. I can't remember neither acronym, but if you go, and try to find this article, Diana Zuckerman, who has been a member of the advisory committee for many years, he, uh, she wrote a fantastic article about the dynamics of these meetings. And one of the points raised was, first of all, the meetings of the advisory committee appear to be piloted by members of the FDA, which should happen. So basically, it looked like the discussions and the minutes, so the outcome of the meetings were led towards a certain direction. But there is something else. Four members, four scholars and clinicians uh, from the advisory committee raised objections in the meeting of the 22nd of October. And were objections exactly uh, the objections I mentioned in the report? So basically, methodological weaknesses, for example, about that, about using um, relative risk reduction and not absolute risk reduction, was about the lack of representativeness of the sample, the short follow-up period, only 46 days. So many objections were raised, and there is some. A, a fact that these four members of the advisory committee, those who raised objections, were not in the meeting of the 10th of December. None of them. It's truly shocking uh, the degree to which the public is being deceived and your verdict after careful and very thorough analysis of the data that we do have concluded very clearly that the FDA and MHRA have acted in ways that jeopardize the public safety because there is no 
evidence of safety and effectiveness of these COVID shots. Did I summarize your findings correctly? Absolutely, but there's something uh, still more striking. What all the agencies, the regulatory agencies have done is to go further, the pharma companies. And I'll give you an example. From the data presented by the companies, there were several categories of population excluded from the data. For example, pregnant women were excluded, breastfeeding women were excluded, immunocompromised patients were excluded from the data, and in general, anyone with a condition in an acute phase. So basically, the data presented by all pharma companies referred to, so we, we I'm talking about 2020, so during the uh, process for uh, emergency uh, use authorization, all the pharma companies presented data about or related to healthy individuals between 18 and 55 years. So most of them. So even you're, uh, you're so people, right. And I want to emphasize that for our listeners, because the fact that they it was proper to, in the clinical trial to exclude pregnant women, breastfeeding women, immunocompromised patients, and patients who were, were sick. That should have been done. But what is stunning is the departure from our normal medical procedures and regulatory oversight is that immediately on the rollout of the COVID shots, they began pushing these experimental prototype gene therapy agents without manufacturing compliance for good manufacturing practices, they started pushing them into all of those groups. And in fact, in the US, no transplants were approved unless someone got the COVID shot. And clearly they had to be immunosuppressed to get transplant surgery. Immunocompromised cancer patients were forced to get the COVID shots to continue their cancer therapy. I, I mean, it was, it was an evil assault on people to put them through the psychological and medical abuse of saying, you can't continue your cancer treatment if you don't get the COVID shots. And yet we knew that these experimental gene therapy agents turned off the tumor suppressor genes and allowed cancers to roar out of control, like putting gasoline on a fire. I mean, this is just, this is so enormous what has been covered up and what has been done to push the shots into groups that were never included in the clinical trial and the public to this day still does not realize the degree to which that was perpetrated on them. I think we need to take a break right here because it's such an enormous oversight, uh, just an enormous thing to wrap your mind around that our regulatory agencies and public health officials and doctors pushing people to get the COVID shots have all failed us. This is Dr. Lee for America. For more on these shocking stories 
and about ways to protect yourself if you've gotten the COVID shot and to find resources for your roadmap to recovery, go to truthforhealth.org, download our vaccine injury treatment guide and go to vaxdamage.org and fill out a vax damage report so that we can guide you to medical and legal resources. This is Dr. Lee for America. We'll be right back with our team on Inside Pharma, bringing you the latest true evidence and the verdict on the COVID shots. Hello, everyone. This is Lieutenant Mark Bashaw, U.S. Army and legal grant recipient of the Truth for Health Foundation. I want to give a huge shout out to the Truth for Health Foundation for helping me and my family over the past year with our legal battles. Recently, I was court-martialed for not participating with these experimental COVID-19 emergency use authorized products. If it wasn't for Truth for Health Foundation and all the support, I would definitely be in a worse spot. But because of all the support, I'm able to continue uniform service, fighting for what's right to protect the Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless America. Welcome back to the second half of the Inside Pharma Whistleblower Report with my co-host from the UK, Hedley Reese, pharmaceutical distribution, supply chain, and manufacturing expert with over 40 years in the pharmaceutical industry, helping to guide these processes for safe and effective medications and vaccines, and has been a major whistleblower speaking about the truth of the failures of good manufacturing practices, supply chain oversight, and safety oversight with all of our regulatory agencies that have been captured by Big Pharma. And our guest today is Professor and Dr. Pedro Morago from Teesside University in Middlesbrough, England. He is a senior lecturer in research methodology and reporting on his expert witness statement about what does the evidence really show about safety and effectiveness of the COVID shots and what is the verdict that all of you need to understand. So welcome back to the second half. Hadley, your comments on what Dr. Morego and I had just said before the break. Yeah, well, uh, what's happened is analogous with what's happened with the clinical data in in that uh, it's been cherry-picked. They've only um, uh, picked the bits that they wanted to show that the the vaccines worked, and they ignored what they should have been doing. The same thing has happened in the supply chain. They have just ignored the normal regulations that have been in place for 40 years. And I think we're faced with a situation where no medical products can be regarded as safe at the moment because we do not have the safety net of regulatory authorities that are keeping patients safe. And I think the real challenge for us is to get 
people like Dr. Marago and the real expert, Peter Dosh, the real experts, to give them a platform based on facts and evidence that can convince lawyers or courts, judges, the people who really should be holding these lawbreakers to account. And, you know, this platform is doing that. More and more platforms are doing it. And I think we've just got to keep on sending this message that this whole thing has been a complete charade. Well, it definitely has been that, but I would say it's been a deadly charade. The deaths are skyrocketing. More sudden deaths being announced every day. And look at all of the crises in our skies. I mean, we have had more pilot deaths and incapacitations recently than we've seen in uh, my adult life. And that's been escalating as well. Dr. Morago, your comments. Um, Dr. Lee, thank you very much. Before the break, you have done a really uh, excellent summary of, of what happened. I will even would like to emphasize uh, again so that, that process. So basically, the pharma companies presented data from which fragile population categories were screened. Then regulatory agencies authorized the medical product for everyone without distinguishing between fragile and non-fragile. And then all Western countries, without exception, and all the public health institutes of the West, without exception, prioritized the fragile categories as the main targets of their campaigns. So if this is science, to me, this looks like exactly the opposite. This looks like anti-science. And also, uh, very briefly, uh, uh, at the beginning of the show, you were, when, when, when I, you were introducing me, you mentioned the kind of specific skills I have. I, I have to say something. These skills, evidence-based practice, are, um, are quite well developed in basically in the academic world in the UK. So basically the UK probably is one of the pioneers in terms of evidence-based practice. In my faculty, we have a team of more than 20 colleagues, more than 20 academics specialized in this area. And I have to say that within my department, we are talking of physiotherapists, occupational therapists, nurses, uh, uh, dentists, so basically professionals from all allied health professions, people have in general a very good understanding of these issues. So basically, I would say that most of my colleagues are quite able to identify the main weaknesses and the main strengths of our research standards. I have to say that I've been the only one within the faculty to raise these questions. The only one amongst, let's say, uh, more than 80 colleagues with this expertise. Only two of my colleagues contacted me in private with fear. And you know what happens when you are the only one who confronts the, all the rest. So basically, you are a conspirationist or, or you are someone who is insane. So that is the situation. So it's not a lack of skills. It just simply was an absolute lack of um, 
wanting to understand what was going on. So, and again, but I didn't have any problem to basically when, when in November 2021, the British government was announcing the mandates, vaccine mandates for health, uh, healthcare workers, which had a huge impact on our students because all of our students, because of their placements, had to get vaccinated. So basically, I sent an email to the dean of the faculty, uh, letting uh, and basically copied into the whole faculty, letting him know of the irregularities and the um, of the absolute lack of evidence based for a massive vaccination campaign. The response uh, I got the email and, and I would have any problem to discuss this issue with the dean again was that we had to follow the government's regulations. Then after that, uh, probably heavily is familiar with this as well. In the past months, we have got to know what the British government uh, were doing during lockdowns. Yes, uh, the British government um, were, to me, central to this whole thing because they ordered the um, injections uh, in mass quantities. Uh, they seem to circumvent all the normal NHS uh, procurement procedures. They circumvented the whole wholesaler distribution network and really uh, made it up as they went along, uh, saying, you know, it, it doesn't matter who you are, you can have this vaccine, you can mix and match, which with these sensitive biologics, you have to prove interchangeability of the different vaccines before you can mix them. And to do that, these studies take a long time and you have to do bioequivalent studies and all sorts of work to prove that, you know, you could use a Moderna vaccine instead of a Pfizer vaccine. But they were just, you know, being changed and the, and the AstraZeneca vaccine as well. They were just being changed. If they ran out of one, you'd get a different one. So are they going to interact when no one knows because there'd be no studies taking place? Well, you know, that was one of the things that I found very alarming as a practicing physician, because I would have patients who, although I had cautioned them about the fact that we had no data on these experimental shots, and I would treat them if they got COVID and they really didn't really need to take the risk of getting the shot. Many of them were pressured by employers, by the military, by um, their university or other doctors to get the shot. And I was shocked to find that for the first injection, they'd get Pfizer and then they'd get a Moderna shot. And it was a kind of a haphazard mix and match that I found quite shocking. And the same with, with the boosters. And we are, we've never done that in the past in order to even determine that a generic medication is equivalent to the brand drug it takes years of study, as you just talked about. So they, they had not done that. But also, Headley, you've been bringing out all along that there was no consistency in the manufacturing from one batch to another no reliability. There's been massive contamination that's been exposed. And here in the U.S. military, 
the DOD directed interchangeability from the get-go without any of those studies. And the command then directed the commanders at the field level to tell the soldiers, airmen and sailors, that, oh, well, it doesn't matter that there's not an FDA-approved shot because they're interchangeable. And they were perpetrating that lie through the Judge Advocate General Corps, through the legal department of the military, through the Department of Defense leadership, all the way from the top down. So the lies and deception have truly been staggering. I mean, I've seen it firsthand here. And I know Dr. Morego has been trying to speak out on this. Dr. Morego, Headley said at the beginning that you have had a keen awareness of all that's going on from a geopolitical standpoint. How do you see these lies about the COVID shots being safe and effective when they are the opposite, deadly and dangerous and experimental and altering the human genome. How do you see that fitting into the geopolitical big picture? Well, uh, very clearly. Just, uh, Dr. Lee, just for the sake of the rigor with uh, our listeners, I, in just a minute, I'm going to clarify something uh, to give a bit more detail about what I said before. So basically, in the UK, until uh, October 2021, the approach, even with restrictions, have been, in general, less invasive than, for example, in countries like Italy, Canada, and Australia. But between the 29th and the 30th of October of 2021, Bill Gates visited uh, Downing Street and had dinner uh, and then several encounters with uh, Boris Johnson, then uh, Prime Minister. And only, only nine days after, on the 9th of November, so nine days after the visit uh, uh, from Bill Gates, the British Health Secretary announced the vaccine mandates for health workers, which will be implemented from, uh, if I'm not wrong, was from the 1st of February 2022, uh, more or less. So, two days after, on the 11th of November, all our students in the faculty, and we are talking of 9,000 students in the Faculty of Health and Life Sciences, received an email telling them that if they wouldn't get vaccinated, they wouldn't be able to continue with their courses because they, as I said before, all of them had to uh, do their placements in health settings, most of them within NHS settings. So, uh, and that was the point where I sent this public email to the dean just saying that because that was a coercive measure and because we were experts in that area, I required, I requested from the team an academic debate. So that was the central point. So my, my point was the evidence is very weak. This is very coercive. This is against fundamental rights. You are pushing people into forceful vaccination because we have the expertise. We are the people who have the duty to have an academic scientific debate. And that, that was when the response was 
no academic debate, just simply we follow the government rules. And that links with your question, Dr. Lee, that has been exactly the same answer that all Western countries have given to that question. No academic debate, no academic debate, no scientific de debate. The science has already spoken through regulatory agencies and through WHO and that science, and there is nothing further to discuss. So going to the geopolitical arena, I will put it very simple, not to, not to exhaust our listeners. If we put together 10 people in a room, even, even people with affinities, if we put them in a room and ask them about a sensitive issue and all of them say the same thing in the same terms, that's a sign of conspiracy. And that's exactly what has happened regarding COVID and vaccines all over the world, or at least within Western countries. All the collective West has adopted the same policies in the same terms, even with the same terminology. There are some bizarre examples of policies regarding, for example, hydroxychloroquine and antibiotics suitable for treating COVID, which have been forbidden exactly in the same terms, but in different languages. And I've seen that in English, in French, in Spanish, and in, in Italian, and in different languages of Spain, for example, Catalan, Basque. So all of them repeated the same terms, but translated to their languages. That has only one explanation, that that policy came from above from above all the governments, all Western governments. And again, when that happens, I think we are entitled to just simply hypothesize that there was a conspiracy. And that was part, clearly, of the uh, geopolitical uh, attack, which thankfully, thankfully, um, despite all the harm that these people have done, despite, as you said, Dr. Lee, all the damage, all the detrimental effects for people's lives and people's health, Thankfully, the whole plan is not going exactly as devised 10 or 12 years ago. So um, anyone who is uh, minimally informed about what is happening now, for example, in Africa, what is happening with the BRICS, the BRICS meeting in South Africa, with uh, what is happening in Ukraine with Russia, can see very, very clearly that the power, the influence of these, these global elites, the ones who devised this plan, is declining. Is declining. And that probably is the good news we may have in this moment. So all these people, the people who devised this plan now are much, much less powerful and much less influential than 10 years ago. Well, that's encouraging because it actually seems to me over here that they have become more powerful with their grip on big tech, big media, big government, big medicine, even the churches in the U.S. are answering to the government instead of God. And we're looking at the dollar being um, pushed off as reserve currency with the BRICS meeting that's going on. This is the 15th annual BRICS summit, but this is the one getting attention because Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and they have invited 60 additional countries to join them to 
go to a gold-backed currency and move away from the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, which essentially will collapse the economy in the U.S. and have devastating consequences in many countries, not only here. And the whole movement towards central bank digital currency is escalating. And all of these things are designed to control people through cutting off money for food and fuel and essentials of life if they don't get the mandatory vaccines. And our government is getting ready to set up more lockdowns this fall, more COVID mandates, and they've already ordered millions of dollars of supplies of PPE. I mean, it's on the government purchasing website. People can go look it up. You don't have to take my word for it. And the government has also, Biden administration has also announced that they are um, ordering more COVID vaccine supplies. So it's as if they are moving forward with this steamroller to assault all of us on our very ability to live. And I hope that from the European perspective, both of you may have insights that are less um, alarming than what we see here. Yeah, I think uh, Dr. Marago has some really strong insights uh, in terms of the balance of power. So I'd just like to hear uh, what he's going to say on that topic, because the last conversation we had, I was really encouraged. And I'm hoping he can report that there's uh, that there's some some movement taking place. Well, in the time we have left today, let's let's end on an encouraging note, then, Dr. Morocco. Well, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, the, what happens is that mm, uh, because of the fast changes uh, which have taken place in the past three years, for example one of the most dramatic changes has been in the uh, uh, report, the relationship between the United States and China, for example. So um, only five years ago, uh, the States and China seemed two very close partners. Now they look like enemies. So these things probably um, uh, don't allow to, to, or we have forgotten that very, very few years ago, the plan of these elites were, was absolutely global. So their plans were to be implemented all over the world. And for example, in Italy, we have seen that very clearly with Mario Draghi. Mario Draghi, who was one of the, basically, the, uh, of the employees, if we can say, of these elites, the, his role was to pilot this plan in Italy and then to export the plan to the rest of the European Union. And that exactly or very similar was the role of Canada and the role of Australia. And to some extent, the role of in the United States. The problem is that the states are too big for a plan like that and with a huge diversity, particularly territorial diversity. But the plan was clearly a global one. So, for example, Mario Draghi was clearly saying that their goal was to vaccinate 70% of the global population. What has happened? That that global plan has failed because in the past two years, particularly, um, a number of counterpowers, national and not only, so uh, uh, 
certainly national states, but also um, spots of resistance within countries have emerged and have made this plan fail. The only thing is that these people still have the power over, let's say, up to 30 countries. So basically, the European Union, Britain, the states, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, more or less those countries. So for those who live within these countries, our sense is really that we are, that they are accelerating and going towards more and more oppression. But if we look at the wider picture, we see that this is a really minority of countries in the world. And that now there are movements in, in Africa, Russia, in South America, in, in Asia, for example, Saudi Arabia, uh, Iran. So there are many countries which are really, really getting out of this influence. So that's why, um, to me, the fact that they were planning a global plan, which now has been reduced at best to between 20 and 30 countries, that's the reality. And my conclusion is that if this hypothesis is true, and to me it's quite, quite based on facts, our role, those of us who live within these countries, our role is to do internal pressure. And that internal pressure will combine with external pressure. So that's why we need to make pressure from within, as we are doing with information, with data, with uh, resistance, uh, basically with uh, with citizen groups. And for example, in Britain, and, and highly I think I can, may or not agree to this, I think that in Britain, for example, has been a, 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 a certain increase, a certain growth of these resistant movements. So and that's good news. So that's my my uh, view of how is the the global picture in these days, at, the, at this moment. Well, that is very, very encouraging. And you're right. It is we, the people in each country, exerting our power to not comply. Basically, we're seeing that resistance rising across Europe. We're seeing more and more Americans saying, no, I'm not getting any more of these shots. I know too many people have been harmed by them or I've had my own health damaged. And I'm going to be very interested in seeing what happens when they try to roll out these next mask mandates. They're already starting here to require masking in hospitals. And they've announced through the Transportation Safety Agency that they will be requiring the masking at airports beginning in September. It's going to be interesting to see how many people vote with their feet and stop flying or how many people just say no and we're also looking at all of the people that are beginning to see the evil unfolding the sound of freedom movie has grossed enormous revenues at the box office eclipsing all of the traditional hollywood um, big studios and people are angry at what is happening, the recent Maui fires and the failures of government and the interference of government agencies with citizen action to help. The anger is building and people are becoming more aware that it is we, the people, who have the power. There are far more of us 
than there are of the global elites. And that is the message of hope. And I always turn to the bottom line that our hope lies in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of God as sovereign over evil. And we know that from down through history, the power of God working in the universe and against evil. And I think my role personally and my commitment is to continue to bring a faith-based message and encourage people to turn back to God, repent of our sins, and pray that he will heal our land. And our prayer warrior teams around the world are doing just that. And I think we are seeing miracles unfold with the power of prayer and the power of the people. This is Dr. Lee for America with today's whistleblower report inside pharma. Go to truthforhealth.org. Sign up for our email alerts. Donate to support our legal defense grants and actions. And join our Faith Over Fear seminar every Tuesday evening to bring you hope and help and solutions against the lies and deceptions. Download our vaccine injury treatment guide. Download our fact sheets to overcome fear with medical fact and resources. And coming in September, we launch the Truth Project every Wednesday night. So we have lots going on to build your strength, faith, and resilience in the face of the assault on humanity. Join us in our crusade. We are silent no more.